Thanks, Michael. Uh, if you've got a Bible, it would be great to have that part of the Bible open, uh, Luke 24 there. That would be super. I'm going to pray. Um, just before I do, though, can I remind you that we have a Q&A time after the sermon. And so if you've got questions on the way through, um, it can be useful to jot them down. I really am open to pretty much any question you want to ask me. Um, I had a fantastic question asked to me after the service last, uh, last week. And, that, and they said, oh, I wasn't sure if I should ask that. I said, go for gold. So if you've got a question on your mind, um, please feel free to do that after the, uh, the sermon is finished. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you are good and you are glorious. We thank you that you raised Jesus from the dead. And we pray tonight that we might see afresh what is so good about this Sunday. Father, we love you and we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you'd open this word to us and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the, uh, the promotion for Easter was discover a good Friday and an even better Sunday. That's what we said we were going to do. And so we want you to discover a better Sunday. And that kind of infers that I should do some work tonight and answer the question, why is Easter Sunday better? What exactly is it that makes Easter Sunday fantastic? Hopefully you were here for Friday for part one, where we talked about Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. Tonight we're going to look at his resurrection, and we're going to think about why that's really important. On Friday in my message, I said, why is Good Friday so good? And I had three funny examples about why Good Friday is good. I don't want to use any funny examples to tell you why Easter Sunday is good. I actually want to make us uh, think a little bit more deeply and think with sober reflection about why this Sunday is good. Have a listen to these words. They're words about longing and they're words about need. What I need is something new and effective, which I've never heard or read about before. For everything I have heard or read is powerless against grief like this. Now, that sounds like a contemporary thought. It's interesting. It comes from a man called Pliny the Younger. There was, yes, there was a Pliny the Elder. Um, He's a Roman governor who was ruling over part of the north of Turkey uh, in 100 AD, so a long time ago. And so that means that this man is writing and saying that he's never heard or understood anything before that could help him in his grief. And that means that he was looking at Roman gods and Greek philosophy, and he was saying, none of these satisfy me in my grief. He says, what I need is something that I've never heard or read about before. Now, ironically, we know about Pliny the Younger because he persecuted Christians. Perhaps he should have listened to what they had to say. However, his need is our need. How do we find Soothing comfort, real assurance for our grief in the face of death. The answer to that is found today. Only Easter Sunday and Resurrection Hope can answer the longings and questions of our souls. And I'm going to try and show you tonight that this idea, this resurrection story, is actually shot through the whole of the New Testament. This hope is everywhere, and in fact, I've found more than 100 verses that refer to either his rising or resurrection more generally throughout the New Testament. An extraordinary number of occurrences. This idea of resurrection underpins everything in your New Testaments. So I want to show you tonight why it's so good, 
and why it answers the grief that Pliny the Younger felt and that I suspect you and I experience when we come face to face with death. I'll start by asking you a question. Uh, does anyone here garden? Is anyone here a gardener? Probably it's the younger crowd. It's like you're hoping someone else is doing the garden. Not many of us are gardeners. Okay, all right. Well, there's, there's two ways to garden. Basically, you can go to Bunnings and you can get a little pot like this and you can grab it and drop it in the ground and go, see, I'm a gardener. Fantastic, right? Or alternatively, what you can do is you can get a little packet of seeds. Has anyone heard of seeds? Yeah, you know, you know what they are? Right, okay, seeds, right? They're little plants that haven't become plants yet. You with me? So what you do is you poke a little hole in the dirt and you drop your seed in. And it's an idea full of hope, right? Because what you do next is you cover it over and you lose all hope. What's happened to my tomato plant? It's gone. It's totally lost, right? It's in the ground. And we, we wait and we water. But it's a faith-filled activity because this little germ of life is in the ground. And we don't think we've done anything gardening until amazingly, by God's great mercy, later on, this little miracle pokes its head out of the ground. But we thought it had died, but we thought it was gone, and then life bursts forth. Now, it's actually a very good analogy for Easter, isn't it? Buried in the ground, without hope, and yet life bursting forth. We've heard Friday. Friday says that our sins are forgiven. Our question can be, how do we know that we're fully forgiven? How do we know that Easter achieved what it needed to achieve? You see, Jesus died on a cross, and we say he died for our sins. How do we know it worked? How do we know it worked? He certainly died, but hundreds of people were crucified by the Romans. How do we know his death was effective for sin? I want you to see how powerful Jesus' life was. In Acts chapter 2, verse 24, it says, God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. There's a beautiful prayer Alec prayed before about being held but not being held by death. And here it is saying, death couldn't keep a grip on Jesus. He just had to come alive again. The punishment for sin was totally paid and he burst forth out of the grave. In Revelation, we get a picture of the worship of Jesus. It's a picture of a lamb looking as if he'd been slain and he's on the throne. And here's the song that everyone in creation is singing to the lamb on the throne. And they sang a new song, it says in Revelation 5, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God person from every tribe and language and people and nation. See, how can the lamb receive praise? Because he's alive. What did his death do? It paid the price for sins. So what's so great about Easter? What's so great about the resurrection? The resurrection's great because it declares that Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. And how do I know? Because he's alive again. Because he didn't stay dead. I wonder if you've seen this movie. Does anyone know what this movie is? Mm-hmm. Has anyone seen it more than once? That's a little joke, right? Okay, right. So if you haven't, um, if you haven't seen Groundhog Day before, I, it's a great movie. It's a, this is a fantastic, totally G-rated movie. Go look at it. It's actually really great. Um, in the movie, 
uh, Bill Murray, uh, his character, wakes up on the same day again and again and again. He does the same day over and over and over again until he starts to learn what happens on this one day in this tiny town, until he can start to act like a god walking through the thing because he knows what's going to happen next because he's seen it multiple times. Door opens, person, and, and he, he robs a bank. He catches a boy falling out of a tree. He, he does a whole variety of things because he knows the day inside out. It's, it's a, great, a great story. Here's the thing. When it comes to knowing that Jesus did what he did, one of the questions we have is, how can I trust what Jesus said? Maybe Jesus died on the cross, but he said a whole bunch of stuff. How do I know for sure what Jesus said is true? Well, I want to show you that without having lived one day again and again, Jesus was able to say what would happen in the future. Have a look with me at Luke 9.22. We read this only the other week. Jesus is talking about himself and he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. What we're told is three separate times in the account of Jesus' life, he said, I will die and I'll be raised. I'll die and I'll be raised. Now, my ability to predict what I'm going to do stops when I die. This makes sense, right? I can tell you that tomorrow I intend to meet with my family, and that's fine. But if I say tomorrow I'm going to die, and then after that I'm going to do something, you'd think I'm a bit odd, because I can't tell you what's going to happen after I die, because I'll be dead, right? So here's Jesus, and he says, I'll be killed, and then on the third day I'll be raised again. We just have to note how odd that is. So he promised that he would die and that he would rise. So did it happen? Well, you're here because it did. Have a look at uh, what happens in our account that was read for us tonight. Uh, come to uh, chapter 24 and come down to verses 41 and following. Jesus has appeared in the midst of his disciples and uh, he's shown them his hands and feet and they've kind of thought that maybe he's a ghost. And while they were, it says, and while they, were still, while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. Now, here's the thing. Some people will say the resurrection is just an act of self-delusion. Have you heard this one? Right? So the disciples were so overcome with grief and they were so hopeful that Jesus would come back to life again that they all collectively imagined that he was alive. And that's the reported story for us. It's no real resurrection. It's just imagined in their heads. Can I tell you what a collective delusion doesn't do? A collective delusion doesn't eat fish. It doesn't eat fish. It's a very odd thing, isn't it? By the way, everyone, do you have any fish? Yes, Jesus, we have some fish. And then he eats fish. Now, the only reason he does that is to prove I guess either that resurrected people have a hunger, I don't know, a hankering for fish, that could be true. But what it definitely tells me is that Jesus was really raised because the fish didn't fall on the floor. Are you with me? The fish disappeared, he ate it. And so he was really raised. And so the resurrection is great because it proves Jesus trustworthy. How does it prove him trustworthy? He said he'd be raised from the dead and he did it. He said it, 
and he did it. If we can trust that Jesus kept his promise about rising from the dead, you can trust him that he is the way, the truth, and the life. You can trust him that he's the light of the world. You can trust him when he says that he can forgive us our sins. The resurrection's great because it proves Jesus trustworthy. Now, I had only one person answer this question this morning, so we'll see how we go tonight. Uh, does anyone know who this, uh, this guy here is? Well played, sir. Storming Norman. Now, at that point, everyone else is going, Storming Norman. Right. Okay. That's apparently I didn't know the right answer. But now it's, you don't know who Storming Norman is, do you? Okay. Storming Norman was the four star general who led the first Iraq uh, war for the Americans. And he's the guy who went in through Kuwait and in a hundred hours basically won the war. He was called Storming Norman because he was full of movement and aggression and victory, and that was his nickname, Stormin Norman. It was an incredible victory, right? With overwhelming power. When it comes to Jesus dying on the cross, we can wonder, hey, wasn't the cross a terrible failure? If you look at the cross, although it's covered in lights tonight, how lovely and beautiful. If you look at the cross, the, the cross is a place of humiliation and shame. I said to you guys on Friday, it took 500 years before Christians started to put the cross in their artwork. And it wasn't because they just weren't very good at drawing crosses. That's about as easy as you can get to draw, right? It was because it was such a humiliating defeat. It was so horrible that you couldn't connect it to Jesus in your artwork. So how is the cross a victory? How is it an awesome, amazing display of the power of God. Well, I want to read to you from Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1. And, uh, and have I read us some of Ephesians uh, tonight already? Um, Ephesians chapter 1 is one long sentence, which is pretty interesting, isn't it? So you start and you go, and you go through the whole of Ephesians chapter 1, right? There's no, there's no full stops. It just goes, which is not how it is in English. It's just one big long sentence. But I want you to see this particular part of it in verses 18 to 21. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus this. He says, I pray, this would be good for us too tonight. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Incidentally, that's a funny turn of phrase, isn't it? Does our heart have eyes? If it did, it would just be looking at blood, wouldn't it? Or the inside of your lungs or something. It's, it's an odd thing to think about. What he's saying is that spiritually inwardly, we would see something fresh. I pray that for us tonight. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but in the age to come. Something stupendously powerful happened at the resurrection. Something truly extraordinary. The resurrection is great because it declares the supremacy of God's power and Jesus' glory. The resurrection says death can be beaten. It says that God can raise the dead never to die again. And even more extraordinarily, did you notice in here, it actually says that his 
power, that power is available for us who believe. Have you plugged into any of that resurrection power recently? Now, I talked before about gardening. Some of you aren't any good at gardening. In fact, I got no response from you, folks. You're hopeless, no gardeners here. But maybe you have a pot plant. Does anyone have a pot plant? Right? Yes? Dusting up a shelf somewhere where it's in the window and you occasionally dust it off, right? If you have a pot plant, what's your one desire? Your one desire is that the pot plant wouldn't die. Lord God, don't let me look at this little tiny stick of life in my house and see it die, right? And you try and remember every three or four weeks to water it. Is that right? You guys are more hopeless than I thought, right? Okay. The idea is we want to keep our pot plants alive. If you're regularly killing them, that's not how they're supposed to work, okay? Here's the thing. As people, we want to live. We want to go on living. I want to live forever. This is the reason people put plastic in their bodies and Botox and various things to maintain the illusion that we're not dying. We want to live forever. That's actually built into us. We want to live forever. And the lies and the plastic of our society won't help us. So how could we live forever? Have a look at this. In Romans 10.9, it says this. Paul, Paul is writing to the Romans. He says, I declare to you, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Two things. Two things there. Can you see them? Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess that Jesus is Lord. Those two things, if you believe that, you'll be saved. Well, what does that saving mean? Jesus tells us in his own words in John chapter 11. Have a look at what it says. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Why is the resurrection awesome? The resurrection is awesome because it says through faith, you and I can have eternal life. Jesus was raised, and if you hitch your wagon to Jesus's, you too will be raised. Believe, and you will be saved. And we want this hope, because sooner or later, we will end up at a scene like this. I don't know when the last time you were at a funeral was. I don't know if you're a young person here, and you've never been to one. Straight after the service in the morning, the first service, a man came up to me and said, I, I, I buried my sister's brother, my brother-in-law, this week. Why do we want to know about life eternal? Because we will end up around a coffin at some point. And the question we want to ask is, I want to know whether my loved ones are okay. I want to know whether my loved ones are okay. This is a longing in our hearts. This is a longing in our hearts. I'm going to read to you from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's a brilliant passage. If you've got time later on, go home and read it in your own time. The reason I want to read you, to the, read you this passage is because here's the thing, guys, right? So you can be doing anything on Sunday night. I'm really thankful that you're here. But if the resurrection didn't happen, there's nothing to see here. And if it did... It makes a difference at this point, as we stand next to the dead body of someone we love, as we go to a funeral path, as we go to a funeral, 
it makes a difference here or it makes no difference at all. I want you to see the difference that it's supposed to make for people who have a Christian faith. Have a listen to these words from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Guys, this could not be more clear. The rest of mankind have no hope, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who've fallen asleep. He says that the last day there'll be a a trumpet blast and the dead will be raised up and together will be gathered up with him to meet him in the air. Resurrection hope for all who believe in him. Why is the resurrection great? The resurrection is great because we have real hope and not hallmark cards. Now, guys, I went pretty hard on this this morning. And people said to me, do you need to take a bit of a chill pill? You know, more or less was what they were saying to me. But let let me say this to you. I'm sure you've heard me say it before, but I want to reiterate it here tonight. The next time you're at a funeral where there isn't a Christian faith, I want you to listen to what's being said. I want you to watch carefully because what you will see in that room is adults lying to one another. They will say, oh yeah, he's up in heaven now, having a beer, looking down at us. And it's a lie because he didn't believe in God. He didn't believe in heaven and they have no idea where he is. Adults speak to adults at funerals and they lie. They have no certainty, no assurance, no hope. But we do. And so I delight in taking Christian funerals. As I say to people, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Guys, there is no other place to find this hope. We have a hope, a real hope and not hallmark pleasantries to cover over our lies. The resurrection of Jesus is great because it gives us real hope. We think, oh yeah, yeah, all this hope you're talking about is based on the resurrection. What if I don't believe the resurrection? Let me give you some reasons why you shouldn't believe the resurrection according to the world out there. I'm not going to try and convince you not to believe in the resurrection. But here's some things that the, that the world would say. Well, Jesus didn't die on the cross. He wasn't really dead. The disciples stole his body. No, 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 not the disciples stole his body, but his enemies stole his body. Or maybe they got the wrong tomb. Or or possibly Jesus escaped the tomb. Or maybe it's all lies. Let me see if I can destroy some of those for you. He didn't die on the cross. I'll give you why I'm confident that Jesus died on the cross. The answer is professional killers. I give you the Roman soldier. The Roman soldier knew how to carry out orders. They also knew how to crucify people. The Romans had refined crucifixion to a pure art of torture. And they were good at it and they did it regularly. In 40 years after Jesus died, when when Jerusalem was sacked, This is an incredible statement, but they apparently crucified 500 Jews a day. 
How many of those do you reckon got down for good behavior? It's a joke. None of them, right? If you're put on a cross, you're put on a cross to die. How do I know that Jesus wasn't brought down from the cross alive? Roman soldiers are too good. He was crucified. He was flogged. He had a spear shoved into his ribcage. I can tell you, he was brought down dead. So strike that one off. Maybe the disciples stole his body. Do you know what tomb Jesus was put in? Does anyone remember? What, whose tomb was Jesus put in? Does anyone know? Joseph of Arimathea. says he's a rich man, and what had happened is he'd cut a new tomb out of the rock. And they put Jesus' body into Joseph of Arimathea's tomb because they wanted to honor him as their faithful leader. They didn't just dump him on the ground. They put him in a beautiful tomb. They put him in the best tomb they could find. So let's say that the disciples stole his body. If the disciples stole his body, they had the body of their precious Lord. The question that naturally follows is, where is the new tomb? Are you with me? Even if they took his body and then said, oh, look, the tomb's empty. He's risen from the dead. At the same time, secretly, they put his body somewhere, didn't they? And they didn't put it in a hole in the ground because they loved him, because he was their Lord. So they must have put him somewhere honored. And if they put him somewhere honored, somebody would have gone back to it, wouldn't they? And then they would have told their kids, the real, the real body of Jesus is here. Come and pray to him here. And there would have been a little shrine at the front and then a church and then a massive church. And then, but you know what we don't have? We don't have a tomb with the bones of Jesus, because they can't be found. What about the fact that his enemies stole the body? This is a great one, isn't it? Not his disciples. His enemies stole the body. Well, then they started to preach Jesus was resurrected in Jerusalem. If you had his body, then what would you do? You would produce the smelly corpse, wouldn't you? These silly Christians, they're running around saying Jesus is alive. Here's a body in a box. There's your Messiah. No, no, no. His enemies didn't steal his body because they would have tipped the whole Christian thing over straight away. Well, what about the fact that they got the wrong tomb? They go to a tomb. The, the women were there early in the morning and they got the wrong address. They didn't have their GPS on. And so they came to a tomb. They looked in and it was empty. And they said, oh, Jesus has risen from the dead. And that's how Christianity got started. It's so incredibly naive, this idea. What you never think about is, actually, there's always the next day. At which point, Joseph says, hey, uh, ladies, can you just calm down a little bit? Hey, everyone, shh, shh. Can we just control all that? Uh, let's, let's just undo that. Control Z, undo. Sorry, everyone, we told you Jesus was alive, but really he was three doors up. There's the stinky body. If they got the wrong tomb, it doesn't start Christianity. It starts an awkward follow-up and retraction notice from the disciples, doesn't it? It wasn't the wrong tomb. Well, what about the fact that Jesus escaped from the tomb? Okay, don't start the Mission Impossible music, right? Jesus was crucified. He had a, a sword shoved into his ribcage. He was wrapped in linen and spices. He was laid on a stone thing like this. But he woke up because he wasn't really dead because the Romans didn't kill him. He woke up, wiggled his way out of strips of linen, got up, no problems with blood loss or anything like that. 
He's feeling very strong, so he rolls back the stone from inside the tomb, okay, breaks out of the tomb, and now here's Jesus standing outside. And my question would be, okay, great, you've got Jesus out of the tomb. My question would be, fantastic, and what? What, what, what did he do next? He's the most famous man in all Jerusalem, in all of Israel. You say he came back to life, he escaped the tomb, and what? Lived quietly in retirement in Rome, eating pasta. It doesn't make any sense, does it? If he survived the tomb, everyone who loved him would have flocked to him, wouldn't they? No, Jesus didn't survive the tomb. Maybe it's all lies. Maybe the whole thing is made up. But here's the interesting thing. What the disciples did was they preached Jesus' resurrection in Jerusalem. They said Jesus is risen from the dead in Jerusalem. And from there, the movement started. It was counted by 300 years of Roman persecution. People who said they were Christians were killed for 300 years. But it's based on nothing. Nothing happened. It's all lies. I would say to you that you believe in a bigger miracle than me. How does Christianity start if there isn't a resurrection? There's no New Testament hope that doesn't name Jesus as the risen Lord. You have a bigger miracle than me. I want you to see that you don't bring doubt to the resurrection account for the first time. I want you to see there's doubt in the resurrection account. Look with me at Luke chapter 24. Let's see what it says. In Luke chapter 24, the picture is that we have women... The women on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Now, why do you bring spices to the tomb if you believe in the resurrection? You don't bring spices. You bring an IV fluid drip and a hash brown. Yes, they didn't go believing in the resurrection. The women doubted, do you see? And then the women came back and they said, Jesus is alive. And the, the disciples, the men said, that's okay, we've been reading our Old Testaments. We know exactly what you're about to tell us. Of course he's alive. Only they didn't. Have a look with me at verse 11 and see what it says. But they did not believe the women. This is embarrassing and awkward for the leaders of the early church, isn't it? These are the guys who are going to be the foundation of the early church. And here's what it says in the account. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like the best news in the history of the... Nope. Because their words seem to them like nonsense. How awkward and embarrassing. You don't bring doubt to the resurrection account. There's doubt built in here. And yet what it says is that right from that point on, when they meet the risen Jesus, Christianity has always proclaimed this. Paul says, I passed on to you what is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. There is no historical Christianity that doesn't have the resurrection baked in. Why is the resurrection great? It's great because it passes the plausibility test. It makes sense. You don't have a better story for how the tomb is empty than the account of the empty tomb. And because it passes the plausibility test, it points to your participation. If Jesus is raised, you can be raised. How extraordinary is that? How extraordinary is that? Incidentally, if you think you've got a good reason of how Jesus got out of the tomb and how Christianity started without the resurrection, 
Come tell me. I've been doing this for a while. I haven't heard one. In fact, what historians say is there's a resurrection-shaped hole in human history. Alrighty. Has anyone played this game? In a park, yeah? If you've got kids, how many games have you got through? I've got through about three and then I go, it's a stupid game. Either you go for the middle and you win or someone is not paying attention and you win. But it's stupid either way, right? I reckon sometimes we think our lives are like this. Does our life really matter? It's just going to go round and round and round and be the same again. Do our lives really matter? What's the meaning of this life? We're told that the resurrection tells us our life has meaning. Have a look at Acts 17.31. It says, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. The Bible tells us that God will judge our lives. And we go, sure, how can we know? Have a look at this. By the man he is appointed, and he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. God says, I'll judge the world, and you'll know who the judge is, because I raised him to life again. Then Revelation gives us a picture of the end of time. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. What the Bible tells us is that one day everyone will be raised and they will be judged. The resurrection's great because it shows us that all will be judged by the risen Jesus. No life is worthless. Every life will be called to account. I like fortune cookies. They're fun. don't believe in them at all, but this is pretty cool. This one says, a plan you have been working on for a long time is beginning to take shape. How wonderful is that? Is anyone going, yes? And then everyone else is going, I should plan. Okay, here's the thing. I want to know my struggles are worth it. Some of you know what it is to plan and see a good plan come about. We want to know our plans are worth it. Here's what the Bible says. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Because death is beating. Because we have hope beyond the grave, our labor is not in vain. And we're told in Revelation, the reward will be, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The resurrection is awesome because it tells us victory is ours and our waiting won't be in vain. So what do we do with this Easter Sunday? Well, you could be in the crowd of disbelieving disciples. If you're in the crowd of disbelieving disciples tonight, I want to tell you to examine the tomb. Go check it out. Not, not literally in metaphor, but, but come and have a look at the evidence. Consider Jesus. Examine the tomb again. And I want to say seriously to you to consider your own. We will die and we want hope bigger than death. If you're disbelieving Jesus' resurrection, I want to ask you to think what you're putting in its place. Some of you might be pondering Peter's, even the women amongst us, I suspect. Uh, we're wondering, what did happen in the tomb? I want to say to you tonight, it's a good idea to commit to following Jesus. There's enough evidence you've heard tonight that Jesus is raised. It's a great idea to start following him today. Start following him today. Some of you might be faith-filled followers, and I want to encourage you to wait well. Imagine, imagine you knew that Jesus was the king of the universe and that death has been beaten. 
Imagine you knew that. And you knew that death didn't have to be the final word. And so you think to yourself, what a brilliant truth. I should make sure I keep it to myself and don't tell anyone. That'd be a shame, wouldn't it? It might even be culpable. I had a lady walk up to me afterwards and she said, I want to tell you, I think I've done badly at telling people about the good news of Jesus. She said, I'm going to go and talk to my brother who's having a heart bypass operation this week. I haven't spoken to him about the good news of Jesus and I need to. Guys, if we have this hope, we must wait well by witnessing to what we know. And we must wait well by worshipping. We should praise Jesus because he's the king of the universe, risen from the dead. I'll finish with this quote from C.S. Lewis. It said, The New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you raised Jesus from the dead and it makes all the difference in the world. Father, I pray tonight for those who have been skeptical about the resurrection and ask that you would help them to consider the tomb afresh. I pray for those of us here tonight who have been anxious and worried about our death and pray that we might know the assurance of your great promises that we will rise with you if we believe in your son, Jesus. Father, I want to pray for those who are full of faith and trust you and ask that we might worship and witness to the good news we know. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thanks, Annabelle. Uh, we're going to have a Q&A, and then Annabelle's going to come and give us our uh, Care and Connect cards. Uh, I get fired up about Easter. Did you know that? I like Good Friday. Good Friday's pretty good. I like Easter Sunday. It's pretty awesome. Have you got any questions, things that you'd like to follow up or ask after that? Yes. So, Hi. Hi. Um, so my question is, um, you talked about how the part, you know how like Jesus talks like over and over again about how he's um, going to be handed over to sinners and yeah. crucified, died, and he'll raise again. And you said that that like really stands out because who talks about their plans after they die, right? Yeah. So Thank you for listening, incidentally. That's wonderful <laughs> in your so, question. So like why didn't disciples get that part if it stood out so much? I still don't get that. I'm like, I love it. That's a great question. I've been thinking about this a lot. I think what happens is the disciples had heard Jesus say that he, you know, Peter said, you're the Messiah. And he went, bing, how awesome is this? I'm friends with the one who's going to be king in Jerusalem. And I'm one of his good mates. This is going to be brilliant. We're going to go down to Jerusalem. There's going to be a big coronation service. And then I'm going to be standing next to him. And I'm going to be really important. And this is going to be awesome. And then the next thing Jesus says is, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed and handed over to the elders and the chief priests and teachers of the law. And he's going to be killed. And then three days later, he, but I think Peter hears. And then he's going to be handed over and betrayed and killed. And then Peter's brain goes, Ee! Because... 
What he hears is, you're going to be killed? He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't even have time to process that and, and you'll be raised to life. He just totally fritzes out his head, just gone, because he said, I'm with you. This is going to be awesome. And, and Jesus says, all the leaders are going to disown you. They're going to kill you and I'm going to die. And I think Peter just loses it completely. And so when Jesus says, and three days later, I'll be raised to life again, I think all of them are just at the fact that he said he was going to die. Now, that, because otherwise, they would be full of faith, wouldn't they? Jesus said three times that he'll rise to life again. The other possible thing is, what the Jews were expecting was a day of resurrection. I haven't talked about this. But what they were expecting was, at the end of the age, everyone would be raised up on a general day of resurrection. So when, when, Jesus, uh, so when Lazarus dies, do you remember Lazarus? When Lazarus dies, um, Jesus uh, turns up and the, um, the sisters go, Jesus, if only you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have had to die. And Jesus says, your brother will live again. And, uh, and she says, oh, I know he'll be raised up on the resurrection, at the resurrection. In other words, she's going, oh, yeah, no, sure, sure, sure. No, 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 he will live again. He'll live again on the final day when everyone's raised. Jesus is going, no, 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 it won't be then. It's going to be now. And that's a surprise. And so I wonder if when he said he'll die and then three days later be raised again, the three days later again, maybe they're not even processing that. Resurrection happens later. Does that make sense? There's some thoughts. But I think just basically human nature. Oh, that's really disappointing, Jesus. I wanted to be with you when it was going to be awesome. And now you're going to die. I, th- I think that's probably what happened. Good, good question. Thank you. Someone else? Question? Oh, yes, go. Um, how long was God on earth for after he rose? Okay, so how long did Jesus stay on earth? What we're told in uh, Acts, did you know that there was a a part two? Annabelle alluded to it before. There's a part two. So Luke finishes and you kind of go, what happens next? Fortunately, there's a whole book devoted to what happens next. It's called the book of Acts and Luke wrote that one as well. And we're told that Jesus is taken up into heaven um, at Pentecost in, uh, in Acts chapter 1, we're told that he's taken up into heaven and then the Holy Spirit comes in Pentecost. Basically, he appears to them over a period of 40 days, it says. He appears to the disciples over a period of 40 days and then the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, which is 50 days after his death. Okay, so 40 days. It's radical, though. So Jesus appeared to them on and off for a period of 40 days after his death. That's amazing, right? And then he was taken up to heaven, and we're waiting for the day one day when he'll return. Is that okay? Awesome. Someone else? Can I ask a question? Yes. Sunday morning events. So Peter responds that he thinks that women's words are nonsense, but they are hanging there in the upper room, right? Oh, sure. Waiting. Yes. So we do see, in the end, uh, we discover that Jesus is actually alive. And so the women's reports aren't nonsense. They were actually true. And, and so women are uh, wonderfully recorded in the Gospels as the first witnesses to the resurrection. And despite the fact that Peter didn't believe them at first, what the Bible records for us, stunningly, is that the first person to know that Jesus was alive was a woman. And in Jewish law courts, women couldn't be witnesses. And so to record in the Bible that the first person to view the resurrection of Jesus was a woman is a stunning mistake by the gospel writers, or it's true. The first people to see Jesus alive were the women. 
Can I ask a follow-up question? I'd love you to. I'll make it brief. So the women went to the tomb with the spices, expecting someone to come and roll the stone away for a I think it's impossible for us to underestimate how much grief impacts us. It doesn't make us smart. It doesn't make us careful. It speaks to here and to here. Not to here. This bit's disconnected. So what are they doing? The women are full of grief and love. So what do they do? They load up a bunch of spices and they go to where their saviour is buried. I don't think they'd thought through carefully exactly who was going to roll the stone back and how that worked. They just knew where they wanted to be and they wanted to be at the place where Jesus was buried. And this, incidentally, is the reason that I reckon there's no chance in the world that Jesus was buried somewhere else. Because they couldn't help but be devoted to the place where he was lying dead, you see. And so, yeah, so, so yeah, hopefully that has that helped. Great. Go follow up, follow up question. This is a very frisky corner down here for, for questions. Okay, if anyone else has got a question, please ask, but go. Nicole. So what, what, what were the guards doing? Because wasn't there guards in front of the tomb? Yep, there were guards in so front of the tomb. So those women turned up and the stone was rolled. Where were they again? Yeah, so, um, <laughs> so, so uh, I think it's Matthew's account um, tells us that the, um, the Jews said, look, what's going to happen is the disciples are going to come and steal the body. And so we're going to make sure that doesn't happen. So they posted a guard at the tomb. And we're told that an angel came and rolled back the stone. That's how it was rolled away. And that when that happened... They fell down like dead men, and then they took off to report the fact that the body was gone. They then do the most stupid piece of work in the world because they make a report up that says the reason the body is gone is because the disciples took it while we were asleep. Just trace this out with me, brothers and sisters. How do you know what happens when you're asleep? Are you with me? I know what happened. I know what happened. The disciples came and stole his body when we were asleep. Not a good answer because you were asleep. Number two, if you're a a Roman guard and you fall asleep on the job, you're going to be killed. So it's not a really good thing to say, but that's what they said. So what happened to the guard? The guard fell down when the angel moved the stone and then they made up a very silly account of what happened. I'm going to stop. Oh, no, there's one more question. Go, please. Thank you. Just because I've got to get to the other side of the room. out so much when Jesus is so gracious to people who have doubts and um, it's almost like people say well um, having faith is the absence of doubt when I think it, you need to work through your doubt isn't that, isn't that how it works so in order to have faith it's easy to have faith yep. if everything's going your way and everything's hunky-dory but when your plans are disrupted and you can't see what the purpose is of God it, then it's not so easy to have faith yep. and God worked all the disciples and everyone who God used had doubts and asked how, so why, why is it so demonised in the church? Doubt. I, I, yeah, I, I want to say you've just done a brilliant job of answering the question with observation, which is when we say that doubts are bad, we've not represented the Bible well. I think you've done really, a really helpful job. The, the disciples doubted. Peter doubted. People all throughout the scripture accounts doubt. And so if we present a picture that says there's no place for doubts in a genuine Christian life, we're not representing the breadth of what's there. That's a really helpful question. And I would say to you, if you're struggling with doubts tonight, it's not that you've suddenly become a non-Christian. 
what I want to encourage you to do and what is what Jesus did. Remember he said to Thomas? He didn't say, Thomas, you're a terrible, wicked man for doubting in my resurrection. He offered his holy hands to the fingers of the doubting man. And that's what I'd say God does to us tonight. Everyone who doubts, come and meet the risen Jesus. Not that it's wrong to doubt, but meet the overflowing evidence that's there and find the assurance that's there for our hearts. Yeah. So the resurrection might be true, but God, I don't know what you're doing in my life. Yeah? Uh, I, think that's, I think that's entirely a lived experience for many, many people. And we need to say we want to stand with you as you struggle with that. God hasn't abandoned you. He says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And that's true even in the darkness. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Why? Not because there isn't evil there or darkness or shadow, but because Jesus will never leave me there. So I'd say, we want to stand with you. Got time for one more, Stu? Oh, yep. One more. Go. I'm liking it. I like that we've got in a question mode tonight. Go, yeah, please. Um, if we are forgiven yes. um, from our sins, then why are we judged according to what we have done ah. in, in um, Revelation? In Revelation 20, it says that there are two books. It says there is a book of deeds and a book of names. A book of deeds and a book of names. And it says, if anyone's name wasn't found in the book of life, they'll be thrown into the lake of fire. But there is a book of deeds. And if your name is in the book of deeds, the deeds that we have done will condemn us to the lake of fire. The only way to be saved is to be in the book of life. And you go, how do I get into the book of life? And the answer is by believing in Jesus. And the awesome thing about the book of names in the book of life is how many things does it tell you you've done? It's a book of names. You've done nothing. It's all by grace. It's all by grace. And that's how we have assurance. Not because I've done anything, book of deeds, but because by the grace of God, my name is in the book of life. Well, that's a good, that's a good spot to stop. It's a great question. Thank you. I'm going to stop and sit down now. Come and talk to me at supper. <laughs>